its Innovation Station initiative, the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues at the U.S. Department of State is amplifying women and girls developing solutions to global challenges and helping them connect with new communities that could benefit from their work. Today, you'll meet a few of those innovators as they explain their game-changing, translatable initiatives in their own words. Welcome to SGWE's Innovation Station. For decades, livelihoods in West Virginia and the broader Appalachian region have been inextricably linked to the environment. Many audience members joining us today may be familiar with the historical significance of coal mining in providing community members with jobs. But West Virginia is also home to myriad other natural resources that have made possible industries like logging, salt mining, and limestone quarrying. Tourism has also been a mainstay in the region, whether your outdoor sport of choice is performed in hot or cold weather, on dry land or in the water. While these industries have been key to sustaining local economies, they are currently reaching an inflection point as domestic and international communities contend with the concepts of environmental impact and sustainability. It's become clear that the myriad industries that rely on the environment must operate synergistically if the environment is to be sustained in such a way that makes long-term enjoyment and profitability possible. Extractive industries and tourism can easily harm ecosystems and communities, especially vulnerable or marginalized populations, and they simultaneously impact and are impacted by climate change. Preventing these outcomes warrants consideration of a paradigm shift, one that transforms our relationship with natural resources and the industries that depend on them from consumptive to symbiotic. One could consider this type of strategy with respect to Appalachia, as well as other locations that depend on natural resources, such as the mountainous American West, tropical Pacific Islands, or rainforest regions in Central America or Southeast Asia. During this panel, we'll discuss the work of two women-led organizations that are helping to turn human-environment relationships from consumptive to symbiotic. They tackle this challenge from the complementary angles of restoration for local use, and sustainability for tourist use. Please join me in welcoming our panelists, Amanda Pitzer, Executive Director of Friends of the Cheat, and Paloma Zapata, Chief Executive Officer at Sustainable Travel International. Amanda, I'm gonna turn things over to you and invite you to start us off by giving a brief introduction to Friends of the Cheat. Thank you so much, Aubrey. Thank you for that introduction. And uh, also just wanted to note um, Mark's comment about how West Virginia stole his heart. West Virginia is a small place uh, with, you know, less than 1.8 million people, but no matter where I go, um, I, you always find someone who has had a special experience um, and country roads, country roads sure do take us home. So thank you. Um, I'm Amanda Pitzer, the executive director of Friends of the Cheat and Friends of the Cheat is a nonprofit uh, watershed group based out of North Central West Virginia. Um, our watershed is about 1,400 um, square miles, so it's not a, a large watershed, but it is an important one and a special one to this area. Uh, Friends of the Cheat was formed in 1995 in response to two very significant pollution uh, incidents from illegal coal mining. And you'll note on my introductory slide here, um, the Cheat River before that time was was long polluted uh, in 1988 uh, that photo was taken no no filter needed that is the um, effects of acid mine drainage you'll see the red iron and the white aluminum staining from heavy metals deposited on the rocks so 
uh, paddlers and locals came together following these two incidents to form this organization uh, with a goal to restore water quality to the Chi River. And since that time, we have worked uh, across um, agencies with over 100 private landowners to develop projects to restore that river. And after uh, 25 years plus of hard work, I'm here to tell you that the Cheat River is back. It's healthy. We have fish from headwaters to the mouth, and you can see a, a photo of what the Cheat River looks like today. Also returning to the river are paddlists, recreationalists, and we're seeing a, a revival. Um, the Cheat River was West Virginia's first commercially rafted river, and uh, we have, again, great memories from that river, but we have overcome um, a reputation of red river rafting. Um, so, in addition to um, the recreation and the great natural resource work that we do, um, we work. I do want to highlight um, the other West Virginia women working in the water resource sector. Um, there is a, a proportionally large amount of women leaders in West Virginia uh, committed to this work, and, and we'll talk more about that today. Um, but as I said, Friends of the Cheetahs worked hard over the last 27 years to restore a river degraded by coal mining, and now we are pivoting to promoting that river um, for all of the right reasons. Um, drinking water, health, recreational use, and pride in our community. Um, so I'm thrilled to join uh, the other women on today's panel um, to put West Virginia and Appalachia in uh, positive light. Thank you so much, Amanda. And now I'm going to turn to you, Paloma. Welcome. Could you tell us a bit about the work of Sustainable Travel International? Hi, thank you, Aubrey. Um, so Sustainable Travel International is a global NGO dedicated to protecting and conserving vulnerable tourism destinations, including explicit strategies and projects related to mountain and forested areas. We believe the tourism done well can be a means for economic development and conservation, but done incorrectly, it could be devastating to those same areas. So we like to work with, this is the nexus that we like to work with. We work with the governments, we work with destination managers, with private sector, with communities, and we also empower and do advocacy work to empower travelers themselves so they can have the tools to make responsible choices. Fantastic, thank you, Paloma. Looking forward to hearing more about all of that. Amanda, I'm gonna to turn to you for our first question today. In your introduction, you of course mentioned the incredible progress that you all have been able to make in restoring the Cheat River and its ecosystems. And I think you started alluding to this, the answer to the question that I wanna start off with, which is honestly a basic one, but one that I think will resonate with many communities around the world, which is why was it important for you to do so for this community? Yeah, great, great question. Aubrey, um, I think as natural resource um, experts and folks that work in the natural resource field, there's a couple obvious answers, right? Uh, clean drinking water is important for all. Um, water unites us. It's one thing that sees no uh, political boundaries, geographic boundaries. Water is important, um, not only for drinking and recreation, but pride in our community. And I think that that underscores the bigger reason why Friends of the Cheat wanted to take on uh, a daunting project, a, a project that many told us was impossible, restoring a river from the dead. And that is because improving a river helps the community and helping the community improves the river. It's as simple as that. Um, the local folks wanted to see their river restored and we felt it was important to follow through with that. That might sound like a simple answer, maybe not an innovative answer, but I think the way that FOC 
followed through with that promise is innovative. Uh, persistence, uh, one, one important trait, but working across agencies, working across um, political beliefs, and also embracing the extractive industry in the very beginning to work with us. So the why um, is because it was the right thing to do. And we have put in the time and we have um, really accomplished what many thought was impossible, which has instilled hope in our community and inspired them to take on new challenges um, and, and we're still delivering. So I think the, the why is, um, is, is evident and, and also foundational to our future success. And we're, we're certainly going to get into more of the how in just a moment, but I do want to turn now to Paloma on the tourism side of things here. I was wondering, Paloma, if you could begin by talking about the balance that tourism needs to achieve between economic and develop, economic development and conservation, both um, considering natural resources and local culture. Indeed. Indeed. So by far too long, tourism has been measured. The success of tourism has been measured by how many tourists arrive and how much money they leave behind. But there's a lot of hidden costs that are unaccounted for, specifically leading to overconsumption of resources, economic leakages, alienation of host communities, commodification of culture, um, pollution, degradation of ecosystems, among others. So none of these impacts have actually been measured before. So we must measure what are the impacts to the local environment, to productive infrastructure, to the host community themselves, so that we can really measure the actual impact of tourism. So ultimately to gain that balance, not only do we need to know, again, how many tourists arrives, but what does that mean when it comes to our you know, roads, when it comes to our waste management, when it comes to our water management? Um, when it comes to, again, how does that impact communities? A lot of places, you know, have been hit by over, over tourism, for example, and what does that mean? So you've seen, you know, traffic increase in traffic. You've seen um, pricing in, in housing go up. There's a lot of other impacts that are, have been unaccounted for. And so a lot of destinations, again, have been measuring this success, you know, being by how many tourists arrive to this destination. But that's not, that's the old model. So ultimately, to really gain a balance, we need to start measuring what are those other impacts and what are those, you know, in, where do we need to invest if we need to invest in more infrastructure in more trails, you know, for parks and in these types of destinations, you know, we really need to also look at the host communities first. What are their needs? I mean, tourism should always, you know, have the needs of the communities at heart at first. And then when you have the needs of the community, then you can really support the community development. You can support, you know, the infrastructure that first meets those communities and then meets again, the tourism experience. And so it's all about balancing what, you know, the tourism product it needs to be a good high end or um, a, a product that is a, a, you know, the experience of the tourist needs to you know, be valued, but also the experience of the local communities. So all those things again needs to come into balance. So ultimately we should strive for a high value, low impact model, not just a, you know, or previously before it was more of a high volume, um, you know, and then high impact, but it wasn't really balanced. So if we look, if we start measuring, if you start using those tools, again, we find that balance. Well, I want to chime in with something that you just mentioned regarding knowing and working with the needs of the community, because your organization worked with Vail Colorado, 
to develop the first sustainable tourism standard targeting mountain locations, which of course is relevant to West Virginia. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about this mountain ideal standard and specifically how it does address tourism and sustainability concerns specific to mountainous destinations. Exactly. So the mountain ideal standard was developed through a collaboration with the town of Vail, with the Walking Mountain Science Center, and of course, Sustainable Travel International. We had been working with um, Vail uh, for a very long time. Um, they went through the GSTC criteria, and we worked with the Mountain um, a Walking Mountain Science Center to develop capacity building programs and impact management programs, all with the lens to be able to finally, you know, have uh, developed this standard. So the Mountain Ideal Standard stands for Innovation, Diversity, Education, Authenticity, and Leadership. And has been recognized by GSTC, and they also won an award by Green Destinations. So it, it's becoming it's, it's now a standard that can be also uh, applied to other mountain destinations. So it was meant to be um, a standard to be scaled up. So, of course, every destination has you know these issues or growing pains, but specific you know mountain destinations have very specific issues. So this criteria, these standards were really um, developed with those issues. At hand. So, what we're looking at accounting for the some sustainability considerations that are most important for um, a mountain resort destinations. So, managing activities on public land within protected areas, very important for these destinations, preserving natural areas, greens, basic scenic views, protecting habitats, streams, wildlife populations. These are all important, again, components specifically for mountain destination, diversifying um, local tourism economy for ensuring year round opportunities. A lot of these destinations may be just, for example, Vail is very much a ski resort destination. So, it doesn't have an effect, an economic effect on communities, um, ensuring affordable workhouse um, in housing and wages as well, um, so that it can maintain the workforce, adapting to climate change. So, of course, we've seen um, in mountainous regions, um, you know, either lack of snow or um, lack of water. So there are specific issues that are a, affecting these destinations or um, a fires, you know, as we see in the summer. So these are very specific issues um, that a, this particular um, standard is looking to mitigate. So adapt, adaptation to, to climate change and reducing green gas emissions. So of course, um, a, again, you know, understanding what the a climate emissions are um, a, of those a, operations and trying to reduce that. Um, preserving and celebrating mountain heritage as well. So understanding what is your heritage and really putting that into value um, and natural hazard and risk management. So these are, you know, very specific. So we did an analysis of what the risks are for specific mountain destinations and then define, you know, those standards accordingly um, to be able to address those specific issues. That's really enlightening. Thank you so much, Paloma. Um, Amanda, I'm now going to turn back to you. Um, the work of your organization, once again, you know, when something has unfortunately gone wrong, that's really where you all have thrived uh, in historically, right, in trying to rectify some of these challenges. Of course, we'll get to some of the proactive and really exciting activities you have going on in just a few minutes. But something that you mentioned in your introduction is that your organization is known, among other things, for its cleanup work related to acid mine drainage. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about your innovative approach to conducting this work, including how you build and leverage local partnerships. Sure, Aubrey. Yeah, Friends of the Cheat has gotten really good at playing defense 
over the years, as, as you point out, um, and that is really why we were formed and in response to some specific incidents um, and what what we have done, um, you know, from the beginning was have a willingness to work with all parties. And what does that mean here in West Virginia? That means a willingness to work with um, private landowners, um, public entities like our universities, but also our extractive industry and, and the companies that are doing the work here in our mountains. Um, in the cheat watershed now, we do not have uh, active mining. Um, so what we are seeing um, from the organization's inception where we were um, partnering with coal companies um, to construct remediation systems, specifically um, you know, cash donations to construct um, treatment treatment units. Now, unfortunately, you know, we're seeing uh, a need for new corporate partners. However, we have a lot of strength in our agencies and, and the funding programs that we've used to date. And we've worked with over 100 private landowners. These are voluntary folks that are willing to let Friends of the Cheat come onto their land and construct treatment systems, sometimes three, four, five, ten acres of space um, for the benefit of the greater good. They do not get compensated. They don't even get a tax break on their property taxes, but they're willing to work with us to improve water for all. And that's really the mantra, right? Clean water for all. So we need to invite everybody to the table. That's really insightful, right? Because there's a huge part of this work that is communication-based, communication-oriented, and, and working with all of, the, all of the different parties that are involved here. So thank you for sharing that. Um, Paloma, I'm going to turn back to you now. I, I feel like I have so many questions to ask both of you. We're going to do our best to get through as many as we can. Um, I, since, since I am in the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, Paloma, the first question I want to ask you in this more free-form session here is how your organization has worked um, to insert women into the tourism value chain, maybe through some examples um, you know, from your work. Yeah, certainly. Um, yes. So, you know, women are definitely vulnerable groups um, that have been alienated and have certain constraints, you know, that maybe other other groups don't have, right? And especially in these, you know, um, developing nations. Um, so one of the one of the work that we recently did in the our islands of uh, Palau is identify local women producer groups. Um, and try to understand what their constraints were in actually um, a, participating in the tourism value chain. So we did a needs assessment um, to understand what those constraints were, were um, to, in order to create some um, training modules, capacity building modules to really bring the, you know, um, the tools that they need in order for them to be able to insert themselves in the tourism value chain. But we also did some work as far as gastronomy to try to revive um, a local gastronomy. So the heritage gastronomy, uh, we worked uh, a, in defining with, with local foods initiatives as well, uh, what the arc of taste was, which is really interesting to understand what that, you know, that, those, you know, that, uh, again, you know, heritage, you know, gastronomy and a lot of the women uh, are the ones that really um, continue on with those traditions. So we try to create um, and link with um, the, in the menus, with the, with uh, a local restaurants and hotel restaurants. So we try to include local products um, and local local products that were produced by these women um, uh, producers um, in order again to not only uh, showcase the food, 
um, which is already, you know, um, increasing the um, a, the experience of, of tourists, but again, creating local um, supply chains, um, which also a, a reduces the need um, a, to rely on imported goods which also increases food security. So this is all interconnected, you know, as you empower women, um, you are, you know, actually creating um, a local supply chains as well as food security for families, because they are the ones that are, um, a, you know, usually, um, you know, maybe it's generalizing, but it, they are the ones that, you know, are a leading, you know, the, Food production for a or local like small crops for families, etc. So you're giving them a livelihood opportunity, um, and again, a reducing that food insecurity that um, may happen in some of these islands. I love how cross-cutting all of this becomes so quickly. Uh, I'm going to turn back to you now, Amanda. In an, a related sense, I'm going to ask you a bit about women-owned small businesses, um, because I I believe that your organization partners with local small businesses, including women-owned ones, to revitalize, for example, brownfield sites. So I was wondering if you could talk about your work engaging women-owned businesses, and also maybe in the process explain to our audience what a brownfield site is. <laughs> sure, I'll do all that. No problem. So uh, I think in regards to Friends of the Cheats um, work with women before I get into the small business, I, I do want to mention that um, through our pollution remediation, you know, we are literally removing tons of pollution from our water every year. And we know that women in water have a special connection, um, whether it's because we're life givers or maybe we feel the impacts harder, not only here in West Virginia, but but globally, um, that I think we are driven to be engaged, um, be leaders in our community, whether that is um, through advocacy work, through nonprofit work, or through leadership in small business. So Friends of the Cheat, um, in our offense, uh, we are looking to partner um, seeking to partner with small businesses related to tourism, related to entrepreneurial spirit around promoting the river. And we um, have started a, a trail town program um, through our uh, brownfields and rail trail work. We will segue here into that shortly. And that trail town program is really targeting businesses that need that extra boost to put their best foot forward as West Virginia starts to um, become a player on that um, broader tourism stage and gosh, I can learn so much from Paloma, but we're going to save that for happy hour. Um, so through our trail town program uh, or our trail town program was actually spurred by what FOC does best, which is uh, infrastructure, construction, earth moving. And as a leader in our community, we um, several years ago, we took on a rail to trail project. Rails, rails to trails are trails that are built on former railroad beds that have um, no longer been viable for rail use. Well, with that uh, property, always comes some pollution and contaminants. So through the development of this rail trail, we are having to remediate the soils from um, pollutants, including arsenic and PAHs, which are commonly associated with, with railroads, um, and in turn, um, uh, clean up that uh, and turn that liability into a, you know, a recreational asset. Um, through all of our construction work, all of our procurement, we always um, do put um, 
uh, gravity on women or small owned business. And really it's a, it's again, a need. Uh, I think part of the, the beat I will, the drum I will bang today is there's a lot of opportunity here in West Virginia right now for new, um, women, minorities, small businesses to grow, whether it is construction, a small construction outfits, engineer, planners, everything from, you know, someone to run a great Airbnb. Um, so again, Paloma, we need to talk more about that because I think where we're friends of the cheat is, is we're in this transitional um, stage. I mean, not just friends of the cheat, but, but our area from the defense to the offense. And we know that we have to do it right. Um, we don't, our communities are very similar, you know, small towns who are having already having issues with failing septic systems and roads. So we are hopefully in a good spot to think proactively and build that foundation. So we are not um, taking away from the people who live here. Um, and if I could jump back in really quick, you alluded to this briefly, but uh, when you talked about the polluted sites, but could you explain really quickly what a brownfield is? I think it's going to come up later in our event as well. I'm sorry. Yes. So a brownfield is a property that is um, either truly contaminated or perception of contaminated. So it is a, it is a property that ha would have economic or redevelopment potential if it wasn't for that contamination. With our rail trail, there is real contamination. But with some properties, it's just the perception because maybe of dilapidated buildings in the area, historic land use. Um, so the Brownfields program run, uh, there's a great Brownfields program run by the EPA. We're also um, utilizing state funding to, to do some of our cleanup work. Um, but yeah, turning these liabilities into an assets and many of them are river facing. They're on our waterfronts because historically that is where the industrial development has happened. So it's a great opportunity to again, pivot to that offense, but we got to clean it up first. Um, and since we are rapidly running out of time, I do want to go back to you, Paloma, for a very brief response um, that I hope you can sort of whet the appetites of the audience. Maybe they can pursue more conversations with you about this. But I do, before we go to our concluding question, want to ask you to just explain a little bit about the work you're doing to address the impacts of tourism on climate change, since I know that's of interest to a lot of folks in our audience. Definitely. So um, that is our main focus um, right now. You know, we work with these vulnerable destinations, but one of our main focus is really trying to reduce the impact that tourism has on um, on, on climate change. Um, the uh, green gas emissions have reduced because of COVID-19, because of the halt of any, you know, travel and industry, but it wasn't intentional. Um, and now that we're back, you know, back online again, basically, it green gas emissions have again gone up. So we're really trying to tackle um, the effects of climate change through redu reducing what tourism or the tourism contribution again. Um, so what we're, what we're looking at is, um, well, we have different means to support destinations and um, a businesses and to understand what they're, again, first is their uh, climate emissions or a, their a green gas emissions first understand so the carbon footprint so that they can um, create an action agenda to actually reduce that first so first to reduce and then secondly um, a, we provide other means for example to neutralize that through carbon offsetting work um, so is to first understand what your carbon emissions are, try to reduce that, and then use carbon uh, offsetting. So carbon offsetting, there are different means um, a, or, or different mechanisms. One is to regenerate and conserve those very important carbon sinks that naturally um, reduce the carbon um, that is a, in the air. Very important from re regenerating forests to regenerating, you know, blue uh, blue carbon. 
um, their renewable energy. So they're to reduce the reliance on um, on fossil fuels. Um, so a lot of renewable energy projects, gas to waste, or you know, um, a, um, photovoltaic with um, a solar panels, etc. There's a lot of different ways. Um, and then there are other you know innovative approaches as well. So now you know, for example, direct air capture is coming online as well. So those are innovative technological technological uh, means to reduce the carbon that is in the air. Um, so we are supporting you know these uh, carbon projects. We're supporting destinations in understanding what their um, carbon emissions are, as well as what their carbon sinks are so that they can become uh, balanced. Thank you so much. And since we do have to conclude this session, I am going to ask you both a Basically, for your final thoughts, if you want to give us sort of your 30 second shorthand version here, um, and that question is based on your experiences, what is maybe one piece of advice you would give to other domestic or international communities looking to improve sustainability when it comes to their natural resource use and Amanda, I'll start with you. Well, Paloma has some great advice. I, I think my advice would be, um, of course, as we step away from coal and, and carbon producing um, energy sources, um, really continuing that spirit of collaboration, partnership, willing, willingness to learn and doing the big and the small things, you know, and I think I think about the friends of the cheat office, you know, I'm the one digging the plastic out of the garbage and I'm also the one writing the multi-million dollar, dollar grants to remove the obsolete uh, dam at the former coal-fired power plant on the cheat river. So we all have to, um, you know, think big and small, and I know that that is challenging and, and overwhelming at times, um, but that's how uh, we will uh, persevere, hands down. Thank you. And Paloma, your 30 second closing. 30 seconds, okay. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, I think we all need to be more conscious about what we do think, how we do things. Um, so, I think, if anything, if I am supporting the tourism industry is understanding, again, their carbon footprint. I think that is the first thing that we need to tackle is climate change. It is definitely an, you know, a, a situation that UN has told us that we're basically, you know, there's a, we're at a point of no return, but we all need to do our part. We need to really change the model. So, really try to understand first, what is that? What are the impacts? What is, you know, how are we contributing to that? And really, once you have that, then you can create your climate action agenda, climate action planning, climate friendly uh, solutions, um, really climate adaptation. That is a must. So I think that is the first you know, um, step that we really all need to focus on the very short and medium term um, if we really want to um, be able to you know, brace ourselves at what's, what's coming because we all know the UN has told us that it's, it's almost at the point of no return. This podcast is derived from audio recordings of SGWE's Innovation Station virtual event series. The views expressed in the preceding episode are those of the featured innovators and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, the U.S. Department of State, or the U.S. Government. For more information on the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, its initiatives, and programs, please visit the State Department website at www.state.gov.